1: who watched this act were men who made their bed under the stars ate figs they picked from trees and fish they caught in the sea i mean those guys calculated life by the bits and pieces and so the complaint came this could have been sold and the money given to the poor and jesus rebuked that criticism this kind of expense never makes sense at the moment especially to those of an extremely practical mindset.
0: If you're honest with yourself, you may hear the description of the extravagance of God's tabernacle and wonder what more practical services all of those materials could have served. But as Pastor Danny will point out in today's message, God doesn't desire practicality from us. We shouldn't be wasteful for the sake of being wasteful, but He desires for us to pour ourselves out in devotion and love for Him no matter the cost. Everything in this world is His, and we can demonstrate great faith in such impractical acts. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Exodus, chapter 35, as he continues his message, The Tabernacle.
1: We talked about the tabernacle last week and lots of detail there. And I had several comments and thanks for the detail uh, on the tabernacle because you read this stuff and sometimes it's like a Home Depot shopping list because it's all these details of the construction and the materials, the furnishings of the tabernacle, but everything has meaning. And we looked at some of the meaning uh, last week. Well, this is the tabernacle part two. I don't know if you'll enjoy it as much as last week, uh, but it's still just as biblical, and it's part of our reading. So, we're taking a section of our reading and kind of highlighting from that section. Now, I want to set things up uh, today by reading from a guy named Chuck Swindoll. The older people might know that name, Uh, the younger people maybe you've never heard of him. He's a Bible teacher, he's a pastor, he's in his 80s now, he's still kicking. I think he's out in Texas. And uh, he wrote one of several books, and I read this years ago. It's called Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. And in one chapter, he takes off and comments from a story in the life of Jesus where he's at a dinner party at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Jesus had healed Simon uh, from his leprosy. He's hosting a dinner for Jesus. The apostles, disciples are there. And in the midst of this dinner party, this woman comes in, And she breaks this expensive jar or vase of perfume. And she anoints Jesus, wipes the ointment with her hair. And uh, the comments that Chuck Swindoll makes about this particular event, I think are timely in light of what we're studying this morning. It was called nard, this expensive perfume. Genuine nard was made from dried leaves of a rare Himalayan plant. And the particular vase Mary used, if it were like others used in that day to hold expensive contents, was itself a thing of beauty. Commonly, such vases were capable of holding not less than a Roman pound, 12 full ounces, of this costly perfume. This woman had a perfume so expensive that if you were to weigh its significance in dollars and cents, you could have fed hundreds of families an entire meal. And there's the rub. Over a year's wages were contained in that one little vase. And the disciples were thinking what they wouldn't say until Judas was the first one to voice his complaint. The special rite of perfuming the head and body was a rare ritual reserved only for royalty. It was the most lofty honor that could be bestowed by a common person. Jesus recognized this and so did those around him. It was a significant moment of momentous meaning. But then he adds, The magnificence of the moment was marred by the murmur of some small-minded men. Those who watched this act were men who made their bed under the stars, ate figs they picked from trees, and fish they caught in the sea. I mean, those guys calculated life by the bits and pieces. And so the complaint came, This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus rebuked that criticism. This kind of expense never makes sense at the moment, especially to those of an extremely practical mindset. Chuck Swindoll goes on to say, There will always be a breakdown in the logic of extreme devotion if the basis of comparison is the poor. Furthermore, There'll never be an understanding by those who confine themselves to operating in that tight, rigid radius. You miss that, you miss it all. People to this day operate with that mentality. Function still gets more votes than devotion. Practicality will always win over beauty. Now I'm jumping around, but let me read you one last section. In a nutshell, I believe this event has been preserved to teach us one major message. There are certain times when extravagance is appropriate. I'll go further. In our day of emphasis on high-tech calculations and finely tuned budgets with persistent reminders of cost, restraint, and propriety, that is, never being guilty of doing anything outside the bounds of the ordinary, anything beyond the basics can be misconstrued as excessive. If you buy into that ever-present Spartan philosophy, then everything you build will be functional Ordinary and basic. Now I want to pause and just add my own comment. I have learned over the years this truth. The bitterness of poor quality lingers long after the sweetness of cheap price. Not only is abundance suspected as being inappropriately extravagant, it's openly criticized. The majority will never understand. They will always make the ordinary their standard. I challenge that. On the basis of this magnificent story, I feel there are times when extravagant gifts are not only appropriate, they are occasionally essential. So are extravagant purchases and extravagant expressions of love, especially if we're determined to live above the level of mediocrity. Extravagant memorials need to be erected. Extravagant art needs to be appreciated. Yes, even extravagant displays of our devotion devotion to the living Lord. I believe there are times when God, as it were, shouts with a smile, break a face. I don't know if you agree with that, but I like it. I like it in the context of what we're reading and, of course, what we're studying again this morning. The tabernacle. And I probably have never thought as deeply as I did this last Sunday until this present Sunday About the tabernacle. Now, with that background, and a quick summary. If you weren't here with us last weekend, we're not going back into detail, but let me give you the summary of the tabernacle. There's one entrance. First stop at the tabernacle is the altar of sacrifice. If you don't offer the sacrifice that God prescribes, you don't go any further. Judgment. You get the one He prescribes, you take the next step, and that's the basin or the laver of washing. We noted last week from Exodus 38, that basin of washing was made from the mirrors of the Israelite women. There's a message there. You need to be able to see what you look like, because if you see what you really look like in comparison with the glory of God, you need washing, you need cleansing. And so the prescribed sacrifice brings you to the labor of washing and now you are washed, you are cleansed, and you can now begin to go into the very presence of God. Next stop, behind the curtain, the first curtain, underneath those other curtains, you have on one side the the bread of the presence. On the other side, you have the uh, seven-stem candelabra. Now you've come to the light and now you're tasting of the bread of life. And what now has previously separated you from the very presence of God, that next veil has been torn in two. Jesus, when He gave up His Spirit on the cross, He said, It is finished. And at that moment, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And now you can go into the very throne of God, where He sits on His throne, and you can come boldly because of the sacrifice of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And He looks at you now through the mercy seat, just as if you kept the Ten Commandments. He looks at you, and now you have life from death, Aaron's rod that budded. But that was last weekend. We can't go back to all those details. But the message is there's only one entrance. Jesus is the only way. And it's His sacrifice that brings you cleansing. And by that cleansing, you can come into the very presence of God into the very throne room. Now, what I thought about deeply from last Sunday to this Sunday that I've never really thought about as deeply, and it's this. In light of what I shared from Pastor Chuck Swindoll, the tabernacle was a pricey project. I've never really meditated on that. We're talking pure gold. Furniture. Furniture. And some furniture that God said, don't just make it gold on the outside, make it pure gold inside, outside, outside. Not just for people to see. There's quality here. This is for God. Pure silver. Fine linen. Priceless gems. It's a pricey project. I was reminded, the capital city of the heavenly Jerusalem, the streets are paved. In gold. And here's the first thought. From my reading, don't give God the goodwill offering. Don't give God the leftovers. Malachi the prophet came and and spoke against Israel because of their failure in doing what God had prescribed. The tithe was mandatory under the Old Testament law, and it wasn't just one 10% tithe, it was several. As a matter of fact, you put all the law required giving together. It amounted to almost thirty percent of your income. They were failing in honoring God, and he says, "The offerings you're bringing me, the secondhand stuff. Try offering them to your governor and see if he would accept them." And God argues, "Am I not a great king? Don't give God the leftovers. Don't give God the goodwill offerings." Now, here's where we get into some some good stuff. Good stuff. Where? Where did the Israelites get the materials for the tabernacle? In Genesis 35, uh, God goes to them and He tells them, Bring me gold, silver, uh, costly stones, fine linen, all this stuff for the construction and the furnishing of the tabernacle. Where did He get it? Where did they get it? You go back to Exodus chapter 11. Look there with me just for a minute. Exodus chapter 11. I mean, this is just amazing to me. Exodus chapter 11 verse 2. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, for articles of silver and gold. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people, because he was doing miracles. Then you go to chapter 12, verse 35. The Israelites did as Moses instructed, asked the Egyptian for articles of uh, silver, gold, and for clothing. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So, so they plundered the Egyptians. Now, some of you in this message, at some points, you might think I've I've moved camps. You might think I'm more in the Joel Osteen type theology camp. And I don't mean that negatively on Joel Osteen as a person. And actually, I heard him recently at a conference in a personal interview they gave, and I liked what he had to say. But listen, the point is this. The point is this. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were owned by Pharaoh. And have you ever thought, like I thought in the last seven days, that in one night, in one night, the Israelites went from being slaves, having basically nothing To millionaires. I mean not just rich. I mean they got gold and silver and uh, priceless gems and the best clothes that the world had. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world and so they got the riches of the world. That's where they got all the stuff for the construction and the furnishing of the tabernacle. God gave them the riches of the world. I put in my notes... Yesterday afternoon, I hand-wrote after I typed in, because I thought about it later after I printed out my notes, I said, they hit the God lottery jackpot. (laughs) They did. They went from being slaves to being millionaires overnight. That's fascinating. Let me tell you something else that's fascinating. God was dependent on the people. What do I mean by that? You go to Exodus 35. Exodus chapter 35. And in the context, I'm just going to read you one verse. Verse 5. God says, from what you have that they got from the Egyptians, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, bronze, and then the whole list goes on. Blue, purple, scarlet yarn, precious uh, stones, priceless gems. This is amazing to me because God could have, He could have said, I gave you all this stuff and now I'm going to tax you 20%. And from the 20%, we're going to build something for the glory of God and for the furtherance of my kingdom. But He didn't do that. He said, If you're willing, bring of the riches that I've given you. If you're willing. He left it up to the people. He didn't try to twist their arm. He didn't put some uh, big heavy pressure fundraising campaign together he just said hey from what you have from the riches if you're willing and they did <laughs> and you go to Exodus 36 man oh man look at this Exodus chapter 36 here's what here's what God was able to do as he depended on the people's willingness the middle of verse three chapter 36. Middle of verse 3. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. And then Moses gave an order. And they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were, listen, the people were restrained from bringing more. How many times did that happen in the history of God's people? Not much, but it did here. Moses sent an order and said, don't bring any more offerings for what we're doing. we got enough. we got more than enough. I thought about that. Years later, when it would go from the tabernacle of Moses, which was a mobile unit because they were traveling. When they get to Jerusalem in the land of promise and the capital city, Jerusalem... God would build a permanent temple. And if you write down, if you're a note taker, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, in 1 Chronicles 29, it tells us there that the fundraising campaign that God had in the permanent structure of the temple was exactly the same as the tabernacle in the wilderness. He didn't tax them. He didn't make it a mandatory thing. He just said, hey, from the riches I've given you, if your heart moves you and you're willing, you come. Bring whatever the whatever is on your heart. Just whatever's on your heart. And David himself stood up and said, for my own personal treasure, I'm a part of this too. What a privilege. And if you read it carefully, it wasn't a heavy kind of a thing. They were celebrating. It was joyous. It was a positive thing. What God was able to do. And I thought about it, and I thought about this truth in light of these Scriptures. Everything God desires to do in the world, He's already provided the material resources to His people. Isn't that a a cool thought? In other words, God would never say, give me something and provide something that He hasn't already given the means for. Otherwise, what kind of God is that? You want me to give something you haven't haven't given me the, the, the ability to do? No. Everything God wants to do. That's encouraging for me. I can tell either you're either you're very quiet because you're listening, or you just can't wait till this message is over with. Pastor Pete Randall up in Edmonton, we were with him recently, and uh, Pete's a young pastor, and he he thinks I know a lot, <laughs> so he asked me questions. One of the things he asked me while he was there he says, "Help me on teaching on giving." I'm so uncomfortable teaching the people in the church about giving. I said, "Well, Pete." Just teach what the Bible says. And if you teach what the Bible says, it's not a heavy thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. And I don't know if we realize that, but it's a positive thing. There are benefits. Personal benefits to God-centered giving. You know what one is? You get treasure in heaven. In Matthew 6, listen to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. doesn't last. Where thieves break in and steal. No real ultimate security here. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Notice in those two verses, He says store up for yourselves. He's not saying store up for the Lord. He's saying store up for you. This is for me. For you. Personally. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. The most secure investment. Listen, this is real stuff. The most secure investment any of us can have is not here. It's in heaven. Stocks here go up, go down. Businesses may go, may not go. You may be a wise investor. You may be a foolish investor. But every time you invest... In something that has to do with God. Especially the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus Christ. Heavenly bank account. Cha-ching! 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 I mean, every time. Every time! It just goes up. When Paul was writing to the Philippian church, and they were the church that were the first ones to support him financially in his missionary endeavors... And he closes out the letter to the Philippian church called the book of Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 17. They have just sent him another gift. And he says to them, not that I was looking for a gift. In other words, he didn't ask for it. But I'm looking for fruit that might abound to your account. Paul knew this principle. Paul knew that as they invested in his ministry, that it was adding to their heavenly banking. It also keeps my heart right. keeps my heart on the things of heaven. Matthew 6 verse 21, Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. It will keep possessions from possessing us. I don't want my possessions to possess me. Nothing wrong with enjoying what God graciously gives us. But don't let those things and don't let that money own you. In another chapter, Chuck Swindoll talks about this, and he says, nicely I actually put it in my notes, he talks about those who are eagle-like in their faith, and he says, those are committed individuals and they live with shallow tent pegs. They may own things, but nothing owns them. They have come to terms with merchandise that has a price tag and opted for commitment to values that are priceless, heavenly brethren. Now, I want to give you some biblical principles to give by. And these are so positive. Uh, One, give with the understanding that it all belongs to God anyway. David, when he's offering to the Lord for the building of the temple, he said in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14, publicly as he's praying to the Lord, he said, Lord, who are we that we have the privilege of giving to You so generously? And what we've given... It all comes from your hand. Where did he learn that? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Because there it tells us that it's God who gives us the ability to produce wealth.
0: Danny has been walking you through several books of scripture in a study called Gleanings from the Old Testament. He's been highlighting important stories and characters, demonstrating how they fit in God's kingdom plans. These people you've been meeting didn't have the benefit of the entire Bible to live from. They didn't know Jesus personally. They only had the promise of salvation to come. In fact, many of the people you'll continue to learn about had to trust God to fulfill the promises that he had made to them, even though they wouldn't be fully realized even in their lifetime. God continues to make promises today to you and to other faithful followers. Those things may be fulfilled while you're still alive, but it's possible that the promise is something for the future, something that you have a part in but won't see fully until you're with Him in heaven. Today, be courageous, stand firm in what the Lord has told you, and follow Him faithfully anyway. You have a part to play in God's kingdom plan, so walk it out with confidence with your Creator. We're so glad that you joined us today on The Living Word. We'd like to pray for you during this study. Would you send us an email and let us know how we can do that? Connect with us at info at ccfstpete.church. That's info at ccfstpete.church. That's all the time we have for today. Join Pastor Danny next time to continue studying in the Old Testament right here on The Living Word.